gracious introduction. We are delighted to be sharing this space with you, and we are blessed to uh, be partnering with, with Grace Redeemer. And uh, we love you guys, and, and uh, our greatest joy is just to be a blessing to you all. Uh, today, the Lord has put in my heart, when Carl asked me to, to share a word, uh, to speak about biblical manhood. So we're going to put that first. Uh, there we go. So, so slot on the overhead here. Um, and although this talk is, by definition, addressed to men, uh, for all the women, women here, my hope is that this sermon will help you know how to pray uh, for the men here at this church. Uh, for the wives, if you know how to pray for your husbands. Uh, for the children, to know how to pray for your fathers. Uh, for single women, uh, to know what to look for in a future husband. Uh, and for all the women, uh, let me say this, because what it means to be a man in our society, this is why I want to talk about this today, what it means to be a man has been so skewed uh, in our culture, and even within the church, within the uh, body of Messiah today. So I want to challenge all the men here today to be the single men uh, and the fathers and the husbands that God has called you to be. Uh, and for the women in this room who've been hurt in the past by men in your lives, my prayer is that this message will help you find healing in your heart uh, from such hurts. So I want to start today at the very beginning, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And we'll put that in the overhead, uh, if you will. Uh, and and uh, the, the word says this, uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the, the birds of the air, and the livestock, and over uh, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that, that creeps on the earth. So God created um, and man in his image. Uh, he created a male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what do we learn here about God's design for men and women? First and foremost, God created men and women with equal dignity. Verse 26 says, God created men and women in his image both of them, with equal value before him, with equal dignity before each other. This is where any conversation about manhood must begin. Uh, from the start of the Bible, God in his word loudly speaks against any kind of male superiority or dominance. So in any culture or in any relationship where, where, where the man is thought to, to be better than women, uh, or where women are treated as inferior to men in any way, we are um, undercutting the very design of God. So neither uh, men nor women are inferior or superior, or, or greater or lesser than the other. We all have equal dignity and worth before the Lord. Then verse 28 says that God blessed the men and the women, the man and the woman, not just with dignity, but with dominion over all creation together. And this truth is echoed in Psalm 8, uh, where David says that God has crowned us, both men and women, with glory and honor over all creation, and put everything under their feet. So God created uh, men and women with, with equal dignity uh, with each other, uh, an equal value before him. That's truth number one. Truth number two, at the same time, God created men and women with different roles. Uh, Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you'll surely die. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the skies. Uh, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called the living creature, 
That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and all the wild animals. But for Adam, for Adam, no suitable helper could be found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, but she was taken out of man. Uh, so get the picture here. Notice that God did not immediately create woman uh, right after he created man. Instead, God prayed all these animals uh, before Adam for him to name them. Uh, what's, that? what's the point of all that? It was not just to tell us how the animals were named. The whole point was to show us that man was alone. There was no one like him. Uh, Adam's reviewing all these animals. He's considering names that match their, their natures. As he sees them, he comes to a conclusion. There's no one who shares this nature with me. So the Lord puts the man to sleep. He forms Eve out of one of his ribs. Now remember, the man was formed how? Uh, out of the dust of the ground. The Lord could have created the woman in the same way, but he doesn't. Instead, the Lord takes part of Adam's side, uh, not from his head, not from his feet, but from his side, next to where his heart is. This is the picture of, of how the woman would be in the deepest sense uh, uh, his partner, his helper. God intentionally forms a helper fit for a man. And, and though, so there she stands, formed by God, like man, but different from man. So God wakes Adam up and he says, you have, made, uh, you, you, you have one more creature to name. And Adam is thrilled. Verse 23, we have the first recorded uh, words ever spoken by a human being. And it's poetry. Uh, it's a song. Uh, Adam explains, yes, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, in Hebrew, Isha, woman, because she was taken from Ish, man. Uh, now, the man and the woman were created in a way that they would complement each other uh, physically so they could be fruitful and multiply. But also, this complementary relationship doesn't stop with just physical characteristics. There's also a relational complementarism, a complementarity here as well. Uh, this is a universal truth. From the very beginning of the Bible, uh, it's been denied uh, and disregarded and, and twisted today into all sorts of perversions that are not God's design. Uh, and this complementary relationship between man and woman in our society today, in so many ways it's being ignored, uh, even more and more so, sadly, by people even within the church, within the body of Messiah. So right from the opening chapters of the Bible, uh, the Bible is going against the grain of all political correctness. But if you listen closely to what the Bible's saying, we see the beauty of this relationship between man and woman uh, that is so missing uh, in our culture today. So follow this in Genesis 2. The man was created to be the head. Now let's be clear about what this word means and how the Bible is using this word. Uh, it's the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, uh, where, he, where he looks back at Genesis 2, and Paul says, but I want you to realize the head of every man is Messiah. And the head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Messiah is God. So the Bible clearly teaches the head of the woman uh, and the head of the wife is her husband. In the same way, Ephesians uh, 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of his wife, just as Messiah is the head of his church, or his holy congregation. So when the Bible uses the term head, it's referring to a leadership role. Again, this is not male domination. Uh, this is not greater dignity. Uh, that would be totally against God's design. Rather, we're talking here about a role. And that's a distinction with which we're familiar. 
Uh, for example, uh, I'm a father. I have two daughters. I've, I've, I have a position of leadership in their life, uh, more so when they were younger, uh, because now they're fully grown, they're, they're living on their own. But this position of leadership of, of the father over his children is designed by God. It doesn't mean I'm more valuable than them or, or that I have more dignity than them. No. It's simply the role that God has designed for me as their father for their good. It's a good role. So man here in Genesis 2, he's created to be the head, to lead with love, to lead with love, to provide, to protect his wife. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15, we read that man and woman were given responsibilities to work the garden. Uh, and the man in particular here in Genesis 2, because the woman wasn't created yet, he was given this responsibility to work the garden in order to provide. And then in Genesis 3, uh, with the serpent entering the garden, we realize that man is responsible not just for providing, but also for protecting his wife, both physically and spiritually. Man is created to lead his wife as the head of his household and to love and to provide for her and to protect her. And not just his wife, but, but women in general. Uh, and we all instinctively know this, don't we? Uh, so for example, uh, you've got two guys and two girls uh, walking down the street. And, all, and, and some attacker approaches this group. There's something wrong if the two guys step back and yell, ladies, save us. <laughs> These are not men. <laughs> By God's design, from the beginning, the man is accountable before God to protect his wife. Uh, and, 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 uh, any time, and, and any husband uh, who rolls over in bed and says to his wife, uh, I heard a strange noise downstairs. Please go check it out. <laughs> that guy's not fulfilling his role as a man and as a husband. A godly leader provides and protects with love and acknowledges his responsibility and his accountability to do so. So the man is created to be the head, uh, to lead with love, to protect, to provide for the woman, and the woman is created to be the helper. In fact, this word is used twice in Genesis 2 to describe the woman. So for example, Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then again in verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper could be found. Indeed, before the fall, in the perfection of the Garden of Eden, this is the only thing declared not good, that man didn't have a suitable helper, that the man was alone. He needed a helper like him with equal dignity, made in the image of God, but also different from him, to complement him with a different role that he has. Now, some people today, they would say, oh, this is denigrating, or this is offensive to women, this is chauvinistic. And the reason people say that and the reason why our culture today is so confused about, about gender roles is because, number one, uh, this truth about headship has been abused and perverted in the past. Number two, the proper distinctions have been so misunderstood. And number three, we no longer live today in a Judeo-Christian culture in our society that sees the Bible as authoritative. Which leads us to the third point. Why did God create man and woman in this way with these different roles? God created us in this way to be a reflection of himself as we were created in his image. And the relationship between man and woman is supposed to be a reflection of the relationships within the Godhead itself, reflecting the triunity of God. God created man and woman to be in a complementary relationship with one another as a reflection of himself. So, so, the, so see the beauty of equality with differences in men and women as a picture of the very nature of God. 
The Bible reveals God exists eternally as one God in three persons. Indeed, we just read in Genesis 1.26 how God refers to himself as us. Right? Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Uh, there's a plurality within unity. Uh, one God manifests in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the mystery uh, of the Godhead. Now, the persons of the triunity, are they all equally God? Are they all equally divine? Yes. The Father is completely God. The Son is fully God. The, the Spirit is fully God. All of them are fully God. But are they, do they have different roles? Yes. So, for example, compare John 1, uh, 1 to 14, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Clearly declaring this Word made flesh, uh, Jesus, as God. But now compare this to John 5, uh, beginning in verse 19, where Jesus says, in essence, I'm submitting to the leadership of the Father. So he says in John 5, 19, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. So here we see a picture of different roles. Both are equally divine, but the Son is subject to the Father. And the Father is the head of the Son. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, The head of every man is, is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of, of Christ is God. The Bible teaches there's a headship and helping within the very nature of God. The Father is the head of the Son. Is that bad? Is that chauvinistic? Is that denigrating or offensive to the Son? No, not at all. It's good. You see, we've been so brainwashed and so programmed in our culture to think of concepts of headship and helper are bad, uh, that they imply domination, uh, that they make one inferior to the other. Our culture says, if there's a difference, it must mean one is superior and the other is inferior. But that's not true. And it's not true at all. It's not true in the Godhead. It's not true in God's design for man and woman. There is in God loving leadership in the Father's relation to the Son. Neither of them are inferior or superior. Neither of them are, are dominating on the one hand or denigrating on the other. Instead, they are one within their complementary roles of loving and leading and being loved and being led with equal worth and equal value. This is loving leadership within the context of a beautiful relationship. And that is God's beautiful design from the beginning of creation for men and women. Now, the reason we react against this is because we've been so, uh, it's, been, it's been so distorted over the years by, by, men, by men and women. And we see this from the very beginning of sin's entrance into the world in Genesis 3. And as we read this, I want you to focus now on the relationship between sin and the man, and sin and the woman, and the role, of, the, the role that the man and the woman each play. So Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of these trees in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit was good for food, uh, and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it uh, and ate it. Uh, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves to, uh, together and made coverings for themselves. 
Okay, there's several, you can do sermons upon sermons on this verse, this passage here, but I just want to show you how sin specifically relates to how it affects uh, men and women in different ways. And our focus today is on men. Uh, so now, now for all of us, though, both men and women, sin, most of all, separates us from God. Sin is rebellion against God. But I want you to see how sin plays out in the man's life here in Genesis 3 in two primary ways, in a passive way and in an aggressive way. And then I want us to think about practically how we men in this room reflect exactly what's going on here in the sinful tendencies in our own life. So we'll start with a passive form of sin. Notice how sin leads man to abdicate his responsibility. Uh, this is the essence of what Adam does in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. Well, if you read this passage carefully, you may say to me, wait a minute, Adam didn't do anything in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. Precisely my point. <laughs> Notice how the serpent, and the way he tempted this couple, subverts the design of God in man and woman. He doesn't, he doesn't come to the man. He comes to the woman. From the very beginning, he undercuts the headship of man. The serpent's enticing Eve to lead the way here. Uh, and from what we can tell from the text, Adam was standing right beside her the whole time. While Eve took the lead, Eve did all the talking, Eve took the initiative. Notice that when God disciplines Adam for his sin, listen carefully to what God says. Genesis 3, verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Notice this, Adam is called out by God, yes, of course, for eating the fruit, but even before that, for listening instead of leading, for ignoring the command. Remember Genesis 2.17, Adam, Adam was the one given the command not to eat from the fruit of the tree before Eve was even formed. So here in Genesis 3, you've got man abdicating and forsaking and abandoning his responsibility to lead. He sits back and does nothing. Instead, he should have stood up, confronted the serpent. What he should have done is said, Sir, you have no business addressing my wife. You need to talk to me, especially about this command, which came directly to me, and I'm responsible to be faithful uh, in carrying it out uh, and being the spiritual covering for my wife and helping her carry out this command so you can talk to me. Instead, he sits by silently like a wimp and does absolutely nothing. So that's one distortion of manhood here. Man sitting back and abdicating his responsibility to lead. The other distortion of man we see here in Genesis 3 is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, that's the sin uh, in an aggressive way that leads man to abuse his authority. You know, after sin enters the world, look at the next verse, uh, Genesis 3.16. Uh, God says to Eve, I'll make you, pain, make you painful in your childbirth. Uh, pains in your childbirth very severe. With pain you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, uh, this is part of the curse of the woman, woman for her sin. But I want us to notice how it relates to the man. The word used here for to rule over you is the Hebrew word mashal, and it's not only used in a good way, it's also used to describe one asserting their authority with, by power and by force. It's often used in the Bible to describe oppression. Uh, so the picture here is that Adam, in his distorted manhood, would end up ruling and leading with a harshness and a forcefulness that was never God's design. This is the pendulum swinging to the other side of the spectrum of a man's sinfulness. This is not man advocating his responsibility to lead, but rather it's abusing his authority as a leader. Man rises up and says, okay, I'm not going to be a wimp in this relationship. I'm going to dominate this relationship. So let's be very clear here. 
Biblical headship does not mean domination. Headship in Genesis 2 is good. But in Genesis 3, as a result of sin, headship becomes domination and force and selfish, selfish abuse of authority. Man seeking to control and abuse their position of leadership in the relationship with woman. Now, we see both of these abuses today, not only all across our culture, but sadly also within the body of Messiah, within the church, and within this very room. We reflect both of these sinful distortions of God's design. So I want to give you here 10 pictures of different men to illustrate for you how these sinful tendencies play out in our life. Uh, so I want to share these examples, and as I do, I want to challenge you, all of you as men here, uh, to put your pride aside and to ask yourself, how are these sinful tendencies playing out in my life? We're going to start with the five passive aspects of man and then the five aggressive aspects. So how man, first of all, the passive ways, how we abdicate our responsibility before God. So here's the first one on the overhead. Uh, won't grow up, Walter. <laughs> this is the guy who lives in perpetual adolescence. Uh, he's in his 30s or 40s. Uh, and the main reason he hasn't taken a wife is because he has no idea where he'd take her. <laughs> he, he lacks direction. He lacks vision. His life revolves around him. Uh, it's, his life is all about what he wants to do. But the problem is he's still figuring out what, he's, what he wants to do. Uh, he's eight years into his undergraduate study. He works only part-time because work stresses him out. Uh, he leans on his mom to help him pay the bills. He's a nice guy. He looks for a mentor. But even when he gets one, he doesn't do what the mentor says because in reality, he's not ready to take responsibility and leadership. He just wants to find himself. Uh, so he won't take responsibility uh, for himself or for others. He spends his time playing video games like a little boy or maybe some other hobby that's more important to him than the mission for which God has created him. He's abdicating the responsibility that God has given him as a man, not only for himself, but for a wife and children because he won't grow up. All right, next one. Absent from reality, Andy. <laughs> Andy has gotten married. He has a wife and children. He pays the bills. He takes responsibility for putting food on the table. But that's where Andy's responsibility ends. He's a, he sits around the table with his wife and his kids. Although he's presently, physically there, presently present there with them, he is emotionally distant from them. He never asks his wife how she feels. He has no clue what's going on in the hearts of his children. Why? Because he's on his iPhone all the time or his computer or watching TV, or out in the garage, working on the car. Uh, he's the dad and the husband who's there, but who's not there. He's totally absent from the reality of what's going on below the surface in the lives of those around him who he says he loves the most. On number three, then there's Too Cool Carl, the guy everybody likes. <laughs> he's funny. He's entertaining. He's about to get, he's got a, he always has, a, always has a good joke, a good quip to get people laughing. He's the life of the party. The only problem is everybody likes him, but nobody respects him. He wants so much to be liked by his kids that he refuses to discipline them. He leaves that to his wife. He wants so much to be liked by people around him, he'll never seriously confront the issues facing them. He wants to be what everybody wants him to be. And so he refuses to stand up for what's good and for what's right particularly if it's costly. And then there comes a point where even his cool, funny antics start to get pretty annoying to his wife and kids because they want a real husband and a real father. Then the one they can respect, not just laugh at. 
Then there's blaming on everybody and everything else, Bob. This is the guy who's got all kinds of reasons why he's not the man God designed him to be. This and this happened when I was young. I didn't have a good father figure. This and this is happening to me now. Now, I want to be careful here because I know that some of you did not have a good role model as a father or didn't have a father at all, perhaps. And I'm not saying these things don't affect you. Of course they do. But did you ever notice here in Genesis 3 that as soon as Adam was confronted by God for his lack of leadership over Eve's life, the first thing he did was to blame his wife. Genesis 3, verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here uh, with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Notice that Adam not only blames Eve, but his blame doesn't stop just with Eve. Adam blames God. You're the one who gave her to me. So technically, God, when you think about it, you did this. You made me this way. Sound familiar? I was just born this way, we say today. You can't criticize me. I can't help it. I was born this way. Blame it on everybody and everything else, Bob. Refuses to take responsibility for being the man God created him to be. Why? Because it's always somebody else's fault. Uh, his parents, his boss, his teacher, his wife, maybe even God. But never he himself. Number five. Then there's rest in retirement, Ron. Notice Genesis 2.15. God creates man with a specific purpose of working in the garden. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to take care of it. Man was created to work before the fall. Work is not the product of the fall. Toil and trouble in our work are products of the fall. But not work itself. Work is a good thing that God created man to do. But if you look at our skewed culture today, what's the goal of every man? Retire from work as soon as possible. We've got all kinds of men in our society who are here simply living for the day where they don't have to work anymore. Where they can just rest and relax and do what they want to do. And they've got all kinds of godly men today, Christ followers, Jesus followers, who are just coasting things out, uh, just relaxing and, and resting until heaven finally comes. But let me suggest... This is unbiblical. Perpetual retirement and rest from work is not biblical. Now, I'm not talking about men with physical disabilities uh, or limitations. I'm not talking about those who retire from a secular job in order to devote their time to the things of the kingdom of God. In fact, this should be our goal, to be able one day to do this, to devote ourselves full-time to God's kingdom. But our goal, men, should not be to be free from any and all work. That misses the whole point what we were created for as men and abdicates one of our primary responsibilities before God. So these are some of the passive pictures of manhood that we see, see around us today uh, that need to be redeemed. Now let's look at the other side of the pendulum, uh, uh, the aggressive, selfish, selfish abuse of authority. So here's uh, tough guy Tom. This is the guy that thinks to be a man, you've got to be the opposite of whatever women are and do the, the opposite of what women do. Uh, women hug and kiss their kids. So this guy never hugs and kisses his kids. Women say, I love you. So this guy never says, I love you. This guy's tough. This guy, th this guy, he thinks he doesn't show emotions, but the reality is the only emotion he shows his wife and kids is that he's distant from them and domineering over them. He barks orders at them. He emotionally and verbally abuses them. Maybe even worse, maybe physical abuse too. But what kind of coward of a man 
asserts his manhood by hurting women and children. Tough guy Tom thinks that being a man is being in charge of everything. At home, at church, at work, he can't submit to authority because in his mind he is the authority. Nobody tells him what to do. Why? Because he's a man. But the reality is he's an insecure little boy who tries to cover up his insecurity by being stronger than the next guy, tougher than the next guy, louder than the next guy. That's his definition of success for tough guy Tom. Then there's get what I want, Gary. His, his aggression leads him to please himself, no matter what it costs anybody else. He's the single guy who preys on single girls to charm them emotionally, to get what he wants from them physically. He's like multitudes of males in our culture, and even within the church today, who get their kicks by downloading pornographic images and videos of women. He thinks he's a man, but he's a boy who can only find pleasure watching these immoral images on his smartphone and on his computer screen. Or maybe he acts out these impulses, uh, committing fornication or adultery with others. And if he's married, uh, leaving his wife and kids behind because he ultimately doesn't care about anybody but himself. He's get what he wants, Gary. He lives for one thing, whatever's best for me. All right, then there's Living for, won't, won't, living, for won't la living for what won't last, Larry. This is the guy who, who's not sitting back in laziness. He's working hard. But that's just where the problem comes in. He works so hard, he defines himself by what he does uh, and, and, and how well he does it. Uh, the success he, he earns, his status he attains, uh, how much money he makes, the possessions he has, and he, the positions he acquires. He thinks that's what ultimately matters. He doesn't realize, in the end, it's all going to burn up. It's not going to matter how much money he made, what kind of positions he acquired. He'll run after these things that the world says are the most important. But in the end, he'll have nothing eternally to show for it. And the sad thing is, he thinks this is the best way to lead and to love his kids. So he gives them what they want. He spends time with them. But the only problem is, he spends time with them teaching them his values, to run after the things of the world. So, so living who won't last Larry, he runs his kids all over town uh, to play football and basketball and baseball and soccer and gymnastics and ballet and judo and archery, hours and hours on end. And these things aren't bad. In and of themselves, they're not bad. What's bad is he never spends hours teaching them what matters, like how to know God and how to pray, how to read and study God's word, how to share the gospel with other people, how to fulfill the purpose for which, for which you are on this planet. He never spends hours teaching his sons and his daughters how to grow as men and women of God. He neglects these things. And in the end, he leads his wife and children to base their lives on what doesn't matter. And one day, they're going to be left with only those things that Larry said matters. The things that he said matters most of all, he's, they're going to end up with those things burning up and they'll be left with nothing in their hands. And he'll at least partially be responsible for their loss. Because part of it was due to his selfish abuse of his leadership in their lives. He and his family will pay for this, both now and in eternity. All right, then there's can't put down work done. He knows he was created to work, but he forgot that he was also created for other things in life besides work. Work controls him. He can't get away from it. 
He's got no boundaries. Uh, his phone's always on. He's always checking his emails, always finishing up one more thing. And but the just one more thing keeps coming. It never ends. Other people set his agenda because he's not man enough to set it himself. He prioritizes what other people want him to do over uninterrupted quality time with his wife and children. And because he can't say no to the things that don't matter uh, in his work, he ends up saying no to the people that do matter in his life. And finally, number 10, there's put a good face on it, Frank. This guy sums it all up. If you can put the next one up, please. Uh, he's some, because regardless of what the issues are, uh, regardless of what the weaknesses are in, in, in his marriage or his kids uh, or, or his home or his life, he just wants to cover it up. Put a good face on it, Frank. Uh, he just wants to move on from this sermon as soon as possible. He wants to pretend things aren't that big of a deal at all. Uh, he doesn't want to talk about any of these things when he gets out of the here and into the car with his wife and his kids uh, a little bit later today, and he drives home from church because he's afraid to admit his weaknesses. And so there's going to be a strange silence in this man's life after this sermon until he realizes and admits that he's not really the man he thought he was. And he's going to have a choice. Every single man in this room will have a choice. Will you, on the one hand, refuse to acknowledge the passive and aggressive effects of sin in your life as a man? Will you cover it up? Will you move on as quickly as you can uh, and be content to live in this cultural illusion that you're a man, when in reality, no matter how old you are, you're a little boy who won't own up to what it really means to be a man of God? Or on the other hand, will you rise up and realize that in and of yourself, because of sin in your heart and in your life and in my heart and in my life, you and I are prone to all these things. We're prone to abdicate our responsibility before God. We're prone to abuse our authority from God. Will you realize this? Will you admit this? And will you repent of the ways it plays out in your life? Will you humbly come before God, the God who made you, and admit that apart from his grace, you will never be the man he created you to be? Will you go to your wife and kids in the next couple days and go to the people you know best and say to them, where do I need to grow? Which of these is me? And then humbly listen and humbly respond because you know you need God's grace in your life as a man. This is the place to pray that God will bring to me and all across this room uh, into, into Christ-like devotion as a man to bring us into Christ-like manhood. So right in the middle of this chapter, Genesis 3, where we see manhood being marred uh, by sin. Right in the middle of this whole chapter, we read Genesis 3.15, where God promises to send a man from the line of a woman who will crush the adversary of this world. Look at Genesis 3.15. So the Lord God said to the, to the, the chas, the, the snake, the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, meaning your offspring and hers, and, and he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first gospel promise in the scriptures. The promise that God will send a man from the seed of a woman, born of a woman, uh, the, the Messiah, Christ, to destroy the enemy and to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, to conquer the effects of sin, and redeem every man and woman who trusts in him. So right after the very first sin, the first, uh, from the first man in the world, we have a promise of another man that's coming, Jesus. 
And that's the good news of the Gospels, that this man has come. And his name is Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. And Yeshua, Jesus, perfectly models true manhood. He is the man that we are supposed to be like. But he's not just some ideal out there that we have to strive to attain. No, not only only does he perfectly model manhood, but he perfectly saves us from our sin and from ourself. He dies on the cross to pay for our sin, your sin and mine, for our sin as men and as women against God. Men, Jesus died to pay the price for all your abdication of responsibility and all your abuse of authority. Jesus takes the penalty of my sin and yours and frees us from our sin so that when we confess our need for his grace and from when we turn, we turn from our sin and turn from ourself and turn to him, put our trust in Yeshua, Jesus, as our Savior and Lord. He redeems our soul. He frees us from the bondage that sin has on our hearts as men. But he doesn't, he doesn't only just free us, Jesus also then fills us with his spirit and makes us into the man that God created us to be. This is all about the cross and manhood. Look at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, how much more did God's grace through that one man, Jesus the Messiah, overflow to many? For by, by the trespasses of one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will all those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus the Christ. So men and women of Grace Redeemer, I want to exhort you today and encourage you today to find your life in the one and only perfect man, the God-man, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. And for you men who are married, I want to exhort you today to love your wives as Messiah loves his church, self-sacrificially by laying down your life for your wife. This is biblical headship and leadership. This is true biblical manhood. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team wants to come up. I think we have some music after this as well. So let's pray together. Hallelujah. Father, we come before you today. Uh, Lord, today we as men, I want to confess that we are totally unable to meet these standards of biblical manhood on our own. Lord, we confess we've abdicated our responsibility uh, and 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 we've abused our authority as men. We have not loved our wives the way that uh, Christ loves his church. And we all, both men and women, we confess today that on our own, we can't be the men and women of God that you want us to be. And so we find ourselves driven to the cross because the cross compels us uh, to a desperate dependence on your grace that only you, Jesus, can give. To be a real man, to be a real woman, is to be found in you, Jesus. We can't be the the men and the women you want us to be apart from you. So, Lord, we run to your cross today. We cling to your cross today. We humble ourselves before you. We turn from our sin. We turn from ourself. We trust in you and only in you, Jesus, to save us from our sins. We as men, we renounce the lies our culture has sold us about what it means to be a man. And we ask you, Jesus, to make me into the man that you created me to be. And, Lord, all of us, both men and women, We hear your call today. We hear your call to the cross, to take up our cross daily, to follow you. For you, Jesus, are the perfect man, both fully man and fully God.
We put our faith and our hope and our trust in you, anew and afresh today. You, Jesus, are the only one who will satisfy my soul. And so we come to you today, and we renew our vows, and we recommit our lives to you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah.